Good Monday evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you had a great weekend. I know I did, and what do you know? Here we are on a Monday evening. It's finally raining where I live. Uh, We've needed rain for quite some time. It's one thing to have rain, but all of a sudden when power goes out, it sets you more than one step backwards. As a matter of fact, I can almost think to myself right now, what if I was living in colonial times? Our forefathers didn't have modern-day electricity, but hey, they did survive. And of course, they may not have had a light switch or, a, um, or an automatic off-and-on um, switch for you know lamps like we know today. But what our forefathers did have were, uh, obviously, they had candles, and they would um, light the candles as means of electricity purposes. And, of course, they would blow them out before, you know, going to bed for the night. But the bottom line is they did have some form of electricity. It's just not the kind that we know today that oftentimes, unfortunately, gets taken for granted. But nonetheless, let's keep our fingers crossed and hope that the uh, power uh, will be restored. But anyways, uh, we are um, talking about, uh, still talking about, that is, uh, through the perilous fight from the burning of Washington to the Star-Spangled Banner, the six weeks that saved uh, the nation by Steve Vogel. You know, Friday's this past Friday's podcast um, was very well worth uh, the discussion about how um, Francis Scott Key was aboard a truce ship, and he was so caught up and had every right to be caught up in all the uncertainty that was surrounding... Um, not just uh, what was on the water, but for the country as a whole. And thank heavens he um, was able to um, not just so much wake up the next day, but he was awake the whole night. And, uh, and then he was able to see as the sunlight beamed our flag still standing In other words, gave proof through the night that our flag was still standing. In other words, through all the turmoil, through all the dark clouds that our country had witnessed in the last three years, especially within the past maybe four to five weeks, they can say three or four weeks earlier, the British had burned Washington. Uh, Our capital was in ruins. Uh, Nobody is there to really defend it. Uh, what's going to happen if Baltimore falls? Is there going to be a United States still? And what do you know? That with the flag still there, there is a United States. There still is a government. It may not be in full um, function, but we still do have a government. We can, can call democracy for the people and by the people. So, let's start off with this uh, leadoff question here. Was the Battle of Baltimore the only major battle going on at, at the start of uh, September 1814? The answer is no. Uh, on September 11th, being two to three days before the bombardment of Fort McHenry, American naval forces scored a major victory up north in a place called Plattsburgh, New York, at the Battle of Lake Champlain. If anybody knows where Plattsburgh, New York is, it's uh, not far from the um, U.S.-Canada line. 
it's on the um, the northeastern uh, part of New York State. It's up in um, what's known as uh, Clinton County. Um, when my wife and I went to the Adirondacks 10 years ago, uh, we stayed in Lake Placid, but uh, we were not too far from uh, Plattsburgh. The closest we got was to a village known as uh, Keysville, where um, a tourist attraction known as Azabel Kazam was there. And that was very well worth uh, doing. But anyways, Plattsburgh is um, centered around Lake Champlain, and uh, Lake Champlain borders uh, New York and Vermont. It's smack dab in the middle. So anyways, given that this battle takes place on September 11th, it turns out to be a huge uh, victory for um, the American naval forces. This victory up north in Plattsburgh, or I should say the Battle of Lake Champlain, pretty much ends all fighting hostilities up north. And it wasn't until Sunday, September 18th, being four days after we um, defeated the British, or should I say being four days earlier, September 14th, the day that Francis Scott Key knew that gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. It wasn't until September 18th that our forces down south in Baltimore finally learned about the victory up north in Plattsburgh, and the guns at Fort McHenry would once again fire in celebration of victory. Not just for Baltimore, but for up in northern uh, New York State. However, while all while all the uh, great turnaround has been um, a blessing and it has caused for a lot of great excitement, it's you know obviously people feel better about being Americans now, but are people, especially in Baltimore, still in fear despite all the this recent success? Absolutely, the vast majority of people in Baltimore were still convinced that the British had potential to launch a surprise attack as they were navigating through the Chesapeake Bay. In other words, they were, had left the Patapsco River to head south to uh, along the Chesapeake Bay um, waters, making their way into the Atlantic Ocean, uh, go back to England. But the bottom line is, I could see how people in Baltimore, and especially along the Maryland Eastern Shore, were extremely worried that the that uh, a surprise attack could have happened. You never want to assume anything, but that's how much um, fear and concern um, these people had, especially given what happened at Washington. Well, you know, it's one thing to rejoice with these, uh, as I said a moment ago, it's one thing to rejoice with these military victories, but there still is a lot of uncertainty with our government. Where did Congress reconvene on September 19th? Congress reconvened at the Patent Office, which was the only government building not destroyed by the British. And it was a three-story building. So obviously there's enough space to house, um, to make a temporary um, housing uh, facility for uh, Congress. I guess it's safe to say that the patent office might have as well been the equivalent of a Greenbrier. And the only reason I say that is because back in the late 1950s and in the start of the 60s, Congress um, 
had authorized, or, or I should say the federal government had authorized that a makeshift Congress uh, be placed um, at, um, at the Greenbrier Resort in West Virginia. This is where all of Congress would have gone in the event of a potential um, nuclear fallout. And this was during the Cold War. So, in other words, they had to come up with a, an alternative place to meet should the inevitable happen that government would still be able to function. So, thank heavens, the patent office is the only, was the only office that was spared by the British when they um, set fire to Washington. But thank heavens, Congress had a makeshift place to meet. Now, where did President Madison and his wife Dolly reside in, in part because the White House is still in ruins. Well, James and Dolly Madison are temporarily residing to a at a home known as the Octagon, which previously belonged to a Fr to French minister Louis Surrier. And it turns out that the rent was more than hundred and ten dollars a month in pretty much the best house in the city. Now, of course, in today's time, $110 rent a month would be is plain dirt cheap. But in 1814, I think it's fair to say that that was a lot of money. Not everybody could afford $110 worth of um, rent in uh, this day and that day and time. As for other de governmental departments, the Treasury Department occupies a former home that uh, belonged to the British minister in the United States. The War Department occupies a building next to the Bank of Metropolis. The Navy Department is, uh, what do you call it, has a makeshift uh, facility at a home near the West uh, Market. And as for the General Post Office, they were conducting business affairs out of a private home. So the bottom line is, you know, here we are in a situation right now where we've got to start, where we have to find alternative places for not only for government to uh, convene and do business, but to also be able to function. These are trying times. It may not be the same situation like it was during the American Revolution, but it is safe to say that during this time of crisis, just like there was in the, uh, in, at the start of the uh, American Revolutionary War, Thomas Paine's book, Common Sense, that famous line, these are the times that try men's souls. Well, even with um, imperative victories at Baltimore and Lake Champlain, we are faced with a situation in terms of restoring government back to uh, what it was prior to the burning of Washington. But right now, we are also in a situation where these are times that try men's souls. The House of Representatives appointed a committee to study temporary removal of government from Washington. Now, here's where we're going to get into um, some... Um, good logical scenarios based off of where pe where people are residing in the United States at this time. If you lived up in New England, did all the New England states support relocating the nation's capital? Yes. If you lived in the southern states, which included Virginia and Maryland, are all the southern states opposed to the removal 
of the capital, or should I say the relocation of our nation's capital? The answer is yes. Southern states feared that a relocation of the capital, if it were to be relocated permanently up north, that the move up north would favor the northern states and leave the southern states in the um, in the dark. So when we think about it, folks, Washington, D.C., of course, there have been people trying to advocate D.C. Uh, to be its own uh, separate state. But D.C. is, you know, smack dab in the middle between north and south. To the south, you have Virginia. To the north, you have Maryland and Pennsylvania. Um, but as controversial as Washington, D.C. may have been in terms of a location spot, it does make practical sense to have it halfway between north and south. Basically, it's almost like as it was a compromise location. There are um, aspects of the nation's government being where it is that would favor the northern states, and there are aspects that would favor the southern states. So, uh, did Congress and the Madison administration face financial and political crises? Yes. Well, for starters, after the burning of Washington, the banks from New York, including those of southern states, refused to redeem paper money for coins. The government had refused to raise taxes to pay for the war, which left the Treasury Department without enough money to fund the war as well as meeting interest payments on national debt. I hate to say this, but we're really up a creek. You know, it's one thing to declare war, or let alone even go to war with another nation, but if you don't have the money to finance the war, or let alone pay um, interest, um, it's very hard to um, be able to... um, how do you call it? It's hard to be able to have any kind of accountability for your for your own uh, self, not just as an individual, but how can a government then be held accountable to its people? So basically, going to war isn't free. And um, how should I say this too? The U.S. government had only half of the money to pay for this war in terms of its war costs in 1814, and unfortunately would have none on hand to pay the following year come 1815. Um, it's, as many people would say, it's, it's sad when you don't even have your enough money to um, pay for your own war. But you could also make the case in today's time that when we went to when our, the Iraq and Afghanistan wars have cost several millions, if not alone billions of dollars, and um, we're probably still paying for those wars today. Of course, that's a whole other subject, but there again, history has shown that um, not all wars that we've been in have not been able to have been, it's not so much a question of not being able to be repaid, but it's taken um, many of years to uh, repay the debt 
it, you know, eliminating debt when it goes to um, when it comes to fighting a war isn't something that just gets happened overnight. Pardon me, it is a little late, but hey, I'm committed to uh, sharing with you all uh, tonight's uh, podcast because the audience, while yes, may deserve to have a break to get caught up on uh, previous podcasts, there are certainly those out there who are eager to learn more about what um, history not only holds, but for this uh, great book, Through the Perilous Fight. Well, on September 11, 1814, which was the same day that American naval forces had defeated the British at Lake Champlain, Navy Secretary William Jones submitted his resignation due to uh, bad business dealings in Europe, which left him deeply in debt. William Jones had been a, a faithful uh, servant to James Matt to President James Madison, but obviously these um, bad business dealings in Europe, um, yes, you could say, have backfired on him, but it's obviously caused so much strain on his ability to even uh, do his job that he has obviously felt it's best to uh, step aside and let someone else take over. On September 20th of 1814, President Madison addressed Congress in Washington. This was a very, um, in some historians' eyes, a very sensitive move. Think about it. Here you are holding a meeting in Washington. It's not just so much your nation's capital, but your capital that was allowed to be destroyed. Yes, by many who felt James Madison himself had sold had sold us out to the British, but by the previous Secretary of War, uh, John Armstrong, who um, who was so ignorant that he um, he just didn't care about our um, country's defenses to the point where um, he allowed uh, Washington to be run over. But there probably is a good flip side to this. Uh, Madison holding a meeting in Washington should also be a sign that, hey, through thick and thin, through the darkest of times, we can find a way to work through this together as one to ensure that our government will not only remain as a functioning government for the people and by the people, but it will stay right in Washington. And as I've said before from previous podcasts or two, there were suggestions to remove uh, Washington as no longer being the uh, capital of our nation. There were people who wanted it back in Philadelphia, others who wanted it in New York, where our nation's first capital was when George Washington became president. There were those who wanted it to be relocated to Baltimore, Annapolis, uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and as far west as Cincinnati, Ohio. I can't imagine the capital being relocated to Cincinnati. Not that Cincinnati's not a bad city. Never been there, but hey, that's pretty far out uh, considering a 19th century um, geographical uh, landscape. But James Madison uh, decides that, of course, it's not his ultimate decision, but Congress finally decides in the end that, hey, we're going to stay in Washington because by convening in Washington, 
President Madison intends to send a message basically that the British attack weeks earlier, while yes, it did destroy all of Washington in terms of all of its build, main governmental buildings with the exception of the Patent Office, these burnings were meant to um, meant to destroy our government, but in the end, the, the burnings themselves, the burning itself of Washington, failed to collapse the United States and its government altogether. So the victories in Baltimore, Maryland, and Lake Champlain, New York, have allowed the American people, including President Madison and Congress, to have moments of much-needed jubilation. Any of you all know what jubilation means? It's another word for excitement. We need something good to feel about right now at this time, people. We... You know, I, I think it's safe to say that a lot of um, Americans in this in this country, at this from the start of this war up until the burning of Washington, really didn't have a whole lot to cheer about. Yes, uh, Commodore Oliver Hazard Perry did defeat the British at Lake Erie, which was very successful, and that uh, we were able to regain the Ohio Valley back into American hands. Yes, William Henry Harrison, or should I say General William Henry Harrison, was able to regain Detroit. Him and his force, he and his forces were able to regain Detroit um, back into American hands, or what we now know as Detroit, Michigan. Uh, but there just wasn't a whole lot of um, unity from the on start of this war because. So many uh, people were bitterly divided about it, and plus two, there just was not enough uh, popularity to want to go to war. Yes, the British were impressing our our sailors on the high seas, but and yet, and how should I say it too? Yes, there were uh, conflicts with the Indians on the frontier. But at the same time, it's one thing to uh, invade another country like Canada. But the Canadians didn't want to be liberated. They were happy being subjects of the British. So when you invade someone else's country, it's not a 100% guarantee that those who, who you think you, you're trying to liberate will go along with the flow. They won't. So as for the jubilation, we needed something to feel really good about and it wasn't so much these two victories. It's the fact that that our country still um, that our country has survived its darkest days. President Madison did firmly believe in the aftermath of Washington's burning, with the victories at Baltimore and Lake Champlain, that the U.S. would become more unified it would become a stronger country and i believe he is right we would have we will become a stronger country it's going to take some time but as i said from a previous podcast i do believe that james madison himself had to see firsthand that militia men or militia units could no longer be the answer to fighting uh, superior opponents like england or any other foreign country for that matter, France or Spain. Uh, the bottom line is, as tragic as the burning of Washington was, 
for Madison, this was, yes, a rude awakening, but it was a, an awakening that needed to happen because now he knows that, hey, we've got to do better as a country to um, be able to be better respected around the world. We've already uh, proven that with Baltimore, but we're just talking about the future, though, too. Uh, given that uh, Baltimore was the most vocal or sh pro-war city from the start to the end of the war, is it safe to say that the city was home to multiple newspaper outlets? Uh, yes, there were two in particular that were um, very well recognized, the Baltimore Patriot and the Baltimore American. They both, both of these newspapers circulated widely along the Atlantic seaboard. Say it's amazing just how far we've you know come at this time. I mean, yes, newspapers at one time were only confined to like a town at best. And when you receive the news, especially in Colonial Williamsburg days, when you received a newspaper, the news you read was probably already two to three weeks old. Nonetheless, it was still news that was worth sharing because if, because think about it. for one, we didn't have cell phones or even let alone just telephones. We also didn't have computers in that time. But if you read about something that happened in Pennsylvania or up as far north as Massachusetts, that was big news. You wanted to find a way as to what else was going on in colonial America. You also have to remember, too, most families only traveled what if outside of their domain, if they went 20 or 30 miles out of their domain, that was a big deal. But not everybody could afford to travel um, that far out. So anyways, uh, yes, the, the newspapers, as time goes along, newspapers, especially after the American Revolution, are becoming more and more um, accessible, and they're playing an even greater role. Um, I would say that newspapers are also catering to political parties. Some newspapers are more federal or cater to federalists. Other newspapers represent the um, views of the anti-federalists or the Democratic Republicans, uh, headed by Thomas Jefferson. And it's probably safe to say that even newspapers themselves could have been like interest groups, and other, just in, far, in part because of who they're favoring. Now, um, both of these Maryland newspapers were the first to make references of Francis Scott Key's song. And the first uh, newspaper to uh, publish his uh, song slash poem was the Mercantile Advertiser out of New York. And then by the very, very end of September... Um, the Boston Patriot and the Richmond Inquirer were would go on to uh, print the song and the uh, poem. But it's finally uh, by the very end of September that this one other newspaper in Maryland, which is outside of Baltimore, being the Fredericktown Herald, Historians believe that either a family member to Francis Scott Key or a dear friend of his may have been the ones who went to the Fredericktown Herald to report the um, 
what was referred to at the time as the mystery person or the mystery man. Some historians say Francis Scott Key's brother-in-law, Roger Taney, who would eventually become Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court from 1836 to 1864, was probably the first to, sh to share with the Fredericktown Herald, who in fact was the unidentified man who wrote what we now know is the Star-Spangled Banner. So, in our next podcast session, we're going to talk um, about the Star-Spangled Banner some more. What I can tell you is this, is that Francis Scott Key, as I mentioned from the previous podcast, he, um, after being released from the truce ship, that's when he um, writes the poem that would ultimately become the national anthem that we know today. I can also tell you this. He actually wrote almost five different versions of what we now know today as our Star-Spangled Banner's national anthem. And in the book uh, that we're uh, discussing, Through the Perilous Fight, there are there is a section um, where there are different versions of this uh, poem, and then... You also see the version that we know of uh, today. But the bottom line is, is that it didn't all just happen in one poem. Francis Scott Key himself experimented around. Of course, he didn't write this poem on his terms. It's like John Philip Sousa said, which I mentioned from back on Friday, the man and the occasion must meet. And Francis Scott Key took himself took all of his shared feelings on the night that he was on the truce ship and relayed them in the poem or in the song that we now know today as our national anthem. Well, folks, uh, we've had a great podcast tonight. And as I said a moment ago, when, we, when I'm back on the air next, we're going to talk uh, about the Star-Spangled Banner because there is a lot more to our nation's national anthem that is worth sharing. Just because we've driven the British, we've defeated the British at Baltimore and also at Lake Champlain in New York, it doesn't mean that everything goes back to normal. In other words, we're not going back all of a sudden to living uh, happily ever after. We've got to uh, figure out how we're going to um, keep going forward as a country because uh, we're still facing crises. But we also have to get through to the, through this as one. We have to be on an us-we-ourselves page. Yes, James Madison is not popular still with many people, but he's going to have to find a way to be able to convince the American people that he still is uh, qualified for the job and that when his time comes as president ends, that he'll still be remembered for some kind of uh, good legacy. Take care for now. All of you stay safe uh, and uh, God bless.